Welcome to a special edition of the Codcast. I'm here today. This is Bruce Mole, Commonwealth Magazine, along with my colleagues Michael Jonas and Jack Sullivan. And we're going to talk a little bit about the upcoming issue of um, Commonwealth Magazine, uh, the latest print issue that's coming out. Um, and I guess I'll start it off. Uh, I, I did a story for the magazine about um, Millennium Tower in downtown Crossing in Boston, uh, a 60-story condo building uh, called an ultra-luxury building uh, for the very wealthy, basically. And I try to examine whether this is good or bad for Boston, and it seems to be a bit of both. I, I think the interesting thing about your story was the what prompted it. I, you know, you might want to talk about that. You wrote about it in your editor's note, but I thought that was uh, um, interesting to uh, read. It's true. I uh, sort of feel stupid about talking about it now, but... Uh, I would watch this building going up, and I saw it finished. It appeared to be finished to me, but when I kept looking up at the penthouse level, 57, 58, 59th floor, there seemed to be holes in the side of the building, and they were never closed up. And it prompted me to start asking questions about the building, and one thing led to another. I did discover that these were not holes. These were indoor terraces, uh, as they called them. But... um, at 57 floors up, it's quite a view. Um, so that's what got me onto that story. Um, but what did you guys write about in this issue? Well, I dug in, uh, this is Michael Jonas, on the uh, uh, issue of vocational technical schools in Massachusetts. And these are high schools uh, uh, across the state. Uh, most of them are run as independent uh, schools. They're, they're separate from the local school districts. And most people know them. They've been around for decades. And, you know, to be blunt, I think they probably uh, had uh, a little bit of a mixed uh, image in some people's minds for years. They were thought of as places that kids might go who weren't, uh, you know, cut out for for academic studies, weren't necessarily college-bound. And so they had they had a bit of a you know of a of a stigma attached to them, and what's happened in Massachusetts over the last couple of decades, a lot of it is really dated to the uh, advent of the ed reform efforts here in the state when we started requiring all kids to reach a certain bar to graduate from high school. Is that these schools that had never been that a- academically focused really upped their academic game uh, considerably, but they also have these great programs that provide. Uh, strong technical uh, uh, um, studies in different areas. And they've become, especially to uh, students in a lot of the state's gateway cities, they've become kind of the schools of choice for a lot of families, especially for more middle-class families. And the upshot of it, or the downside in a lot of people's minds, is that there are kids who in the past would have gravitated to vocational schools who can't even get in uh, these days because the schools use a competitive admission system, sort of like colleges or in Boston. Some people might be familiar with the exam schools here that you have to pass a test to get into. So they've become, uh, I mean, one mayor, the mayor of Haverhill, told me they've become like elite prep schools, which I thought was a little bit of a, a little uh, hyperbolic, but, but not completely. And so there's this kind of reversal where uh, kids who struggle in the, in the main district high school and who are the kind of kids people think might really benefit from the hands-on learning, the chance to get away from the kind of, you know, sit-in-your-seat academic focus, those kids 
a lot of them are finding that they're not able to get seats in these schools, and it's created a lot of tension across the state between school district leaders and the vocational schools. I think one of the interesting things about the, the voc tech schools now, I, I, when I was growing up and, and as a young parent, the, the ideas of voc tech schools were uh, trade schools, you know, the auto, uh, auto repair and, and uh, uh, ba- basically shop you know, is, is what we would refer it to now. But one of the things that, you know, in talking with you when you're writing that, the interesting thing are some of the offerings that they have now, marketing and um, technical skills around right. computers, right. things like CAD, that. Computer-assisted design is one focus, you know, and kids come out of there with, you know, and actually unlike kids graduating from a regular district high school, kids come out of there with, you know, marketable skills for the job market. And really, in most high schools, kids are really not, other than a minimum wage job, the thing they're, they're qualified for is to go on to college. Right. Um, and it was also interesting, you said this, but not maybe as emphatically as I am, that these schools, the Vogue schools, can now be very selective about who they take, which is unusual for a public school. Even a charter school, which is often, charter schools are often accused of skimming kids, the best of the, the kids that they can get. Uh, they have lotteries to determine who gets in, but not so these schools. Right, they don't. And that's actually been the charter school sort of lottery model is one uh, idea that some of the critics have put forward. Some of the mayors of, uh, especially in the gateway cities and the district superintendents who feel that the local Vogue schools are, as you say, skimming kind of top students and also sort of disadvantaging kids who, who might benefit from Vogue schools who've not thrived in middle school who can't get in. And they've said, why not just award the seats by lottery? And that's had a, there's been a lot of pushback from the vocational schools. I think, you know, certainly this current model works well for them. And the other argument that they make is that these schools are not just there simply to provide kids with uh, an education in the way that a district high school does, but they say they are really an integral part of the state's economic development strategy or workforce development uh, uh, approach. And so the employers that they work with, they say, in particular, are, uh, you know, objected when they raise the question of whether they should go to a lottery. And so the local employers, they want these schools to take the best kids they can of those applying. So it's, it's, it's created a lot of tension. Jack, tell us about your story. Um, mine's uh, pretty thick and pretty complex. Um, I, I got an email back in uh, late last year, beginning of this year, um, from a woman who was a researcher at a cancer uh, research institute um, or a lab at um, uh, St. Elizabeth's. Um, very, very um, involved about uh, how the lab was uh, run out of business and you know, cutting-edge research was, was wasted, taxpayer dollars. And, and it the the email and the initial contact that I had referred to a couple of uh, stories in other media, WBZ TV for one and, and the Globe for another, that had touched on it. And I, I just thought, well, there's not much there for us to do. But had a little downtime after the last issue, so I started looking at it and, and realized, number one, that, that it was never fully reported as to what happened. And the more that I looked into it, it was just a, a, a fascinating, to me anyway, look at this lab that was um, one of 12 um, such labs doing this kind of cancer research around the country with over $30 million in grant money from um, the National Institute of Health, 
uh, NASA and the Department of Energy. And what they were trying to do was, you know, not just to, you know, cure cancer or treat cancer, they were looking to prevent cancer, you know, which is kind of a stunning thought when you think about it, that, uh, you know, most of the approaches in, in cancer research is, well, how do we deal with it? How do we cure it? How do we treat people with it? How do we, um, you know, make make the advances? So as I looked into it and found, you know, hundreds and hundreds of documents um, in, in courts, in uh, Secretary of State, in various areas, come to find out that these two guys, um, or three guys actually, took over the nonprofit. Um, and over a period of time, uh, less than two years from the time they took it over, um, it went into bankruptcy. And um, all of the research was destroyed um, by order of a uh, bankruptcy judge who said that, you know, it would be too costly for the trustee of the uh, uh, estate to uh, maintain it. Um, and it also meant that the, the $30 million that was spent on that research was basically wasted, you know, taxpayers' money. Um, and, uh, you know, these these millions of dollars of, of high-tech and high-end equipment were sold for pennies on the dollar um, and put into escrow because it was a, uh, a fight as to who owned it. Is it the uh, uh, public asset or does it belong to the nonprofit? Um, so the judge ordered that the uh, equipment sold and the money put into escrow, but it, it still didn't approach anywhere near what the value was. For instance, it was a half a million dollar um, microscope that they used uh, for the research that was sold for $10,000. Um, clearly not the the type of uh, return that you would expect on public dollars. So it, it's really, you know, again, it's a very complex story, but a really fascinating look as to, uh, you know, and, and I think our headline says it all, death of a cancer lab, you know, this, this cutting-edge uh, lab that was led by these world-renowned researchers, uh, Lynn Halatke, um, Phil Hanfelt, the woman who contacted me, Christine Briggs, all people who have a very high profile in the cancer research field and are highly regarded. Um, so I think that, uh, to me, it's a very interesting uh, story. Yeah, it was interesting. The Department of Justice tried to argue that the research belonged to the federal government because the federal government had put up all the funds. But the judge took a more narrow interpretation of uh, bankruptcy law, I guess, and said, no, my job here is not to settle that issue, but to to settle um, where the money should go and 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 the, basically the viability of the estate, paying off debts to creditors. Right. She, she took her job, which is, you know, I guess you could make the argument that is what the uh, bankruptcy judge's um, uh, first priority is, which is to um, take into consideration the estate and the creditors and, you know, what is in their best interest. And her decision in the best interest was to sell the assets um, to satisfy the creditors. Uh, but what she did, and, and you're right, it was somewhat of a narrow approach, but her decision was more that um, there's a good faith dispute here between the, the government and the trustee, so we'll sell off the assets and put it into escrow and, and then settle it from there. The problem with that is that it doesn't, um, it doesn't anywhere near approach the value of, of what, A, the, the 
um, equipment was worth, but B, the research itself. And as far as destroying those samples, there is no, there is no recoverable value to that. You know, they, they created these cancer cells that, um, you know, were able to uh, replicate themselves in a natural manner, which was kind of a uh, uh, breakthrough discovery. Um, and it, it would take at least six years to um, just to get to that level where they were when they uh, destroyed those samples. So one other feature we have um, in this issue is a, a story about uh, Holyoke and the mayor of Holyoke, Alex Morse, who are sort of uh, throwing out the welcome mat for pot businesses to move into town. Um, Michael, you did a profile of him a long time ago, Alex Morse, the mayor. Does this fit with your sense of him at that time, or is this was this surprising to you? No, I mean, I wasn't that surprised to read it. Uh, I think he's... You know, he's really trying to sort of think outside the box, <coughs> excuse me, uh, in Holyoke. And um, so I think it, it sort of fits. And I think he realizes that, you know, Holyoke has got to sort of try some new plays. And, and maybe especially if he sees a lot of other urban leaders kind of marching in the other direction, he'll, he'll, yeah. be, he'll kind of go, go counter to that. And, and yeah, he's the sort of guy who I'm sure has, uh, you know, been reading what's happening in other states and he's maybe seen some of the upsides that it's meant for for local economies in other states. Um, so I, I think it sort of does fit. Although I, I also am a little bit recalling that on the casino issue, he you know he was he, first of all he's a really young mayor. He was you know in his early twenties when he was first elected. Um, he he sort of did it about face on the casino issue at one point. Uh, you know strongly against it. Then he suddenly realized it was coming to Springfield before he settled back into a position, I think, opposing them coming to Holyoke. Uh, but on this, I don't know, I, I, it, it sort of fits with the guy I, I met. It is generational, I think, in a way with, uh, with marijuana, that uh, you look at some of the cities and towns that voted against it, and I think there were 24, they, they tend to be a little bit more Republican and a little bit older in their demographics. Um, but, you know, Holyoke, you've got uh, um, Alex Morris, who's, what, 25 now? 26 something like that and and I think that the the uh, polling uh, showed that the you know under 35 uh, voters were were heavily in favor of marijuana so it would make sense that uh, you know that type of a generational approach would uh, would favor expanding it in Holyoke although I think if I'm not mistaken that uh, uh, the, the Ted Seifer the, the writer who did the did the piece for us reported that Lawrence was one of the cities that uh, was not keen on legalization in the vote, and that uh, you know there's sort of parallels between Lawrence and Holyoke of you know having high poverty, high Hispanic population, and frankly both places that you know cities that have struggled with drug illegal drug problems, right? And that you know the feeling was that that might have you know predisposed a place like Lawrence to say you know we have enough problems with drugs here. Right. But again, Holyoke, you know, he's he's kind of betting the betting the other way. And it was interesting. I'd never thought of this, but there's uh, the story reports that there's a lot of abandoned mill space there, and the, so this whole con concept of urban farming taking hold. Mm -hmm. Maybe not just marijuana, but other crops taking hold in these old, you know, empty mills. I, I thought that was fascinating. Um, so I thought maybe we'd run through a few other stories. A little quicker, 
just to give you a sense of what else is in the issue, um, we have a, um, an interview with Stephanie Pollack, the State Secretary of Transportation, um, who makes very clear that she's, uh, even though she's a lifelong Democrat, that she's a big fan of Governor Charlie Baker um, and suggests that she wants to stick with him if he, if he wins through a second term. Yeah, that part was, I thought, a pretty interesting little nugget in your interview that, you know, she said, if he'll, if he'll have me, I'm here. I'm, you know, so uh, a lot of the cabinet secretaries tend to cycle through and, you know, do one term or part of a term and, and move on. But I thought that was pretty remarkable that she laid down sort of that marker. Yeah. And then, Jack, you came up with a piece about uh, people that hold statewide office. Yeah, I th- well, it, 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 it kind of uh, stemmed from the uh, pay raise bill, the controversial pay raise bill that uh, uh, zipped through the legislature uh, earlier this year. Um, one aspect of it kind of hit me that um, they passed that uh, part of the pay raise bill was a uh, $65,000 housing allowance for the governor, um, which Governor Baker has said that he's not going to accept, but it's in the bill, it's in the law nonetheless. And the argument for it from the uh, commission that um, had recommended the pay raises was the lack of uh, a housing allowance and the lack of a, uh, an official gubernatorial residence um, had a tendency to um, stop people from outlying areas for running for governor. So I thought we'd take a look at it and see, you know, exactly where did the governors come from. We went back to about 1900. But it also struck me if if it's the case for the governor, well, why isn't that the case for all the constitutional officers? You know, I, so we took a look at that, and I think what we found was pretty interesting. You know, that the vast majority of them, not surprisingly, come from you know within um, I want to say the 128 belt, but we went back to 1900, and 128 wasn't there back then. <laughs> Uh, but I, I think it was something like 88% of all constitutional officers come from within a 25-mile uh, radius of Boston. Um, that just struck me as uh, fascinating, even though, you know, there's the argument that, well, that's where the votes are and, and that's, uh, um, that, that's where the Democrats are in, these, in this day and age, uh, especially Middlesex County. But nonetheless, I mean, it just, it, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't make it any less uh, surprising that nobody from the Cape has served in a constitutional uh, office since uh, 1900, and only uh, two governors have come from Berkshire County. None, none, and the only other constitutional officer from there is um, uh, Lieutenant Governor, who was uh, uh, Governor Swift, Lieutenant Governor Swift. Uh, who um, you know made some pretty interesting comments, I think, for the piece. So I, I, I thought it was a, a little fun piece, but it was also, to me, very uh, reveal, revealing. So Boston rules everything. Boston huh? rules. <laughs> Go Bean Town. <laughs> so then we have another piece that uh, seems to be resonating. You can see it through a number of lenses. Um, Sean Zeller, our Washington correspondent, did a piece about U.S. Representative Stephen Lynch. Um, uh, who describes himself as a lunch bucket Democrat. And uh, Sean's piece sort of wonders whether in this era where Democrats are increasingly fighting against President Trump and the GOP control of Congress in a, in a very strong way, whether he is someone who's adopted this sort of uh, middle of the road, willing to cooperate with both sides, whether he's out of step with his party. What do you guys think of that? I... 
I thought it was interesting. Um, he also did it in context of uh, um, Lynch being challenged by um, the uh, video game of Brianna Wu, um, you know, the potential for her. And, and I think he was kind of, I think what Sean was showing was the, the differences between, you know, Lynch, the, um, the Southie Paul versus the, the New Age um, uh, candidate. And I, but I thought it was interesting how Lynch um, positions himself with feet in both sides, you know, in in the old Southie as well of saying that, you know, I understand the differences that, that's going on now. I understand um, the people that are uh, moving into Southie, but he still nonetheless grabs onto his union roots, which, um, you know, there's a question, are, are they as powerful and are they as... Um, as necessary now as they were when Lynch was first uh, elected. And and I think Sean makes a really good point that, you know, that it, it is starting to wane their power. And, 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 you know, with it, does that mean that Lynch's staying power is waning? I think it's a good question. And I think that, you know, Lynch has, has been very clear about calling himself a, a more moderate Democrat and hasn't, has not run away from that. He's kind of embraced that that label, and uh, even just a, a month or two ago, made some comment that he thought the media was being a little unfair to Trump, and you know he offered sort of a more modulated view of, of everything that was going on. But within weeks of that comment, uh, there was a story uh, that Sean, you know, grabbed onto the reporting of that uh, sort of late in the process, frankly, with our issue where it, it turned out that Lynch had been invited to the White House to meet with, I think, one of Trump's. Uh, congressional liaisons or domestic policy advisors. They were trying to bring in a, a group of exactly what Lynch says he is, moderate Democrats, to see if they might be able to, you know, create some, uh, some a working relationship. And Lynch declared he wasn't going to the meeting, which was, uh, in, on one hand, sort of astounding, but I think, uh, to not, not to be too cynical, but I think you have to uh, imagine that the fact that he's got this challenger coming in the primary who you know is going to run hard at him from the left with this, you know, you know, let's just sort of, you know, build a, you know, a, 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 an oppositional, you know, sort of wall to Trump for his wall. We'll build our own wall. Um, and I, you have to think that was kind of going through his mind. And so suddenly the guy who was willing to sort of hear everybody out doesn't even want to go talk to the Trump people. I, th- I think that was kind of what I read into it that, you know, he's trying to have it both ways, you know, which which was not like Steve Lynch of, you know, eight, ten years ago. I mean, Steve Lynch was, you know, this is who he is and this is how the district's going to see him and this is how he's going to vote. I think the redistricting has probably, uh, and this wasn't part of the story, but I think that's part of what you have to take into uh, account is the redistricting has him now covering Brockton and Randolph and other very diverse communities outside of, you know, the traditional um, white, older demographics that he had, you know, the first few years uh, in office. But it was also interesting to me that Brianna Wu, um, basically, um, uh, because of her, well, I won't get into all the details, but she was basically picking a district where she wanted to run, and she looked for the Democrat that would be least likely to be all out against Trump and said, I'm going to go after him. Now, whether she has a chance, chance or not, that's what she saw as her opening. And I think it's sort of an instructive, um, instructive for, to, to view what's going on right now, both in Washington and here in Massachusetts. Can a Democrat 
sort of say, yeah, I, I, I'm going to talk to Trump about this? Or will they be politically cast off if, if they do that? Um, increasingly, it seems like the Democrats want to fight and let the chips fall where they may, whereas you felt like before they were more willing to sort of seek common ground, possibly, or at least some parts of the party. And that seems to be evaporating. Yeah, I mean, I was just seeing some reference to it the other day. It was only, uh, you know, early in the 2000s that, you know, there was Ted Kennedy and George Bush together uh, behind the, the No Child uh, Left Behind uh, education law, this big bill signing, a huge sweeping piece of legislation. It's just so hard to imagine something like that, and they tried a scene to like the that happening. As well, right, and McCain was involved in the immigration, and, and uh, it just does seem like a really different time. Although, you know, I, I, I could be proven wrong, in which case I hope nobody will remember this recording, but I think I'm among those that I'm not, you know, I think it's a, it's sort of exciting to see, oh, there's going to be this race with uh, this woman with an interesting background in the gaming industry. I, I, I sort of am a little skeptical of how far she's going to get, especially because, as you said, she's just parachuting into this district. And, I mean, if she does take off, it will be uh, a sign just of how much People are hungry for a change, and and how even Lynch, who's now sort of taking a little bit of a harder line against Trump, I mean, if he becomes vulnerable from that, I'd be really surprised because I don't really see the ingredients that you know that she has going for her. She's got no no I, I you know, no do. grounding in this district whatsoever, and and I think the national press has kind of latched onto it too. She's become kind of a you know it's kind of a, a kind of interesting figure to write about the New York Times Magazine featured her in their Q&A a couple of weeks ago, which I opened up one Sunday and was shocked to see, because I don't even have a sense that, you know, does she even, you know, does she even know where Randolph is? I mean, I, I, I think that's a legitimate question. Well, I, I, I think I tend to agree with you, uh, and I think that that, but I think the the key to Sean's story um, was that he kind of showed that Lynch may not be thinking the same way we are. You know, I think however he frames it by by saying I'm not paying any attention to the primary or you know who my opponents are he clearly is making some shifts to uh, to accommodate that and I think that's where Sean's piece I think is pretty revealing well I don't think you have to look too far though I remember Elizabeth Warren the darling of the left uh, and clearly has bona fides as fighting Trump she voted for one of his cabinet secretaries and all hell broke loose because what was she doing? She was deserting her principles and, and then she flip-flopped. You're talking about on uh, Ben Carson. Ben Carson. That's she, right. It was in an early committee vote. She voted early. yes and then she heard about it and she yeah. somehow came up with a, a rationale why that was then but now yeah. on the final well, vote, is it, no. that she, is, is it that she voted yes or is she voted yes to send it to the floor for a vote? I mean, there yeah, was but a she no, but she signaled at that time. She said, "Well, he's someone I think you can talk to." I mean, she made the same kind of yeah. talks, and she thought that who whoever Trump might send up in place of him would probably be even worse. So she was clearly getting ready to vote for the final final uh, you know confirmation of him. Yeah, it just seemed to show that even someone in her position didn't f- feel the comfortable strain too far once once. People saw that she was voting off the reservation, if you will. Uh, <laughs> that was a bad choice. It's a really interesting choice. <laughs> uh, but once she did that, she caught hell for it and um, and changed her mind. And I think 
that's going through, probably through Lynch's mind. That's going through a lot of Democrats' mind right now. Um, Eric Eric Cantor uh, on the other side is a perfect example. You know, I mean, you probably couldn't find a, a more conservative member of Congress at the time, and yet he wasn't conservative enough. Right. So I think that's what you're going to find around here. You know, you can... Elizabeth Warren is, you know, the Eric Cantor of the liberal side. She may not be liberal enough. Right. Well, anyway, those are some, that's a sampling of the stories in, in our latest print issue. And as you can see, uh, all of them sort of generate a discussion. We hope you have a discussion after you read them, and please feel fr free to share your thoughts with us. Um, but uh, this will conclude our uh, our podcast for today. And uh, but check us out. You can subscribe to us on um, uh, SoundCloud and iTunes, and uh, we're on every week. Thanks for joining us. 